0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Prospective police officers in Aurora take a written assessment and a video test. How do you think the officer should get this suspect to the ground so he can handcuff him and take him into custody? An investigation by the Sentinel in Aurora finds the city is accepting recruits who score the equivalent of Ds, a result that would be disqualifying in neighboring communities.
1: The city as a whole has found itself in quite a pickle here. Because on the one hand, they're legally required to diversify their police department, to hire more qualified candidates. At the same time, they are one of many departments struggling to recruit new officers.
0: Later is Compromise, a dying art at the state capitol. The latest episode of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish...
2: When your car stops working, needs too many repairs, or when you're just ready for a new one, donate it to Colorado Public Radio. We'll come pick it up, then send you a tax receipt when it sells. To get things started, all you have to do is follow a few simple setup steps, say goodbye, and then your car will soon be on its way to making great things happen. Start the donation process on the support page
0: at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. After the death of Elijah McClain in Aurora Police Custody in 2019, the city signed a legal agreement requiring it to improve its police hiring and recruitment practices. Well, an investigation by the Sentinel in Aurora finds the city is bringing on officers whose entrance exam scores are lower than what other local departments would consider hireable. In some cases, cops have been brought on with the equivalent of a D grade on the tests. Sentinel reporter Brian Howey joins us. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You focused on two tests. They come early in the hiring process, right after somebody's applied. Uh, One is written, one is a kind of interactive video test. Maybe start by talking about the written one.
1: The written test is a personal assessment that measures their integrity, racial biases, and how they would use force in the
0: field. And the video test, which I'll say you took, what does it entail?
1: Right. So I took a practice version of this test, which is a truncated version of the actual test, which is somewhere around an hour long. But it presents candidates with hypothetical situations that are acted out on camera where they have to, say, interact with members of the public or make a split second decision that mimics what an officer would have to do in real life. And so these are situations where you say you're pulling someone over or you're deciding whether or not to fire on a suspect who's about to harm someone else right in front of you. So after the video plays out, candidates have a few seconds to decide between a list of options and then they select the option and move on to the next hypothetical situation. That guy's
3: all over the road up there. Let's pull him over. Come on.
1: A drunk driver will take two hours to process.
3: Just let it go. What are you doing? Don't punch him in the plate. Then they'll know he saw the car. I think we should stop him. No, look. Let's just follow him for a little while, all
1: right? Look at that. He's pulling in.
2: He made it home, all right? Let's go. If you were this officer,
0: what would you do? How did you do? Not as well as I would have hoped. Uh... Acknowledging, of course, that you have not been to school for this.
1: No, but neither are the candidates who are taking this test in the first place, right? The whole purpose of this test is that you don't have to have any sort of law enforcement experience in order to take it. And so I had hoped to do slightly better. I will say that the practice test is quite a bit shorter. So I had a lot fewer chances to... uh, To do well or
0: to do poorly. (laughs) Right. So the idea is that this is for folks who are Eventually going to make it into the academy.
1: Right, right, which is
0: where they get the real police training.
1: So I got, I think, about a 76% on this test. Now that's a C. That's a C, and that's passable, um, according to many police department standards. In fact, it's uh, nearly 20% higher than the lowest score that Aurora PD will take.
0: 20 Yeah. We're going to delve into your methodology in a moment, Brian, but um, you looked at recruiting classes from 2019 through early this year, and you found that Aurora's Civil Service Commission, that's kind of the operative body here, that they voted to hire three officers who got the equivalent, as you've suggested, of D's on the combination of these tests. Are they on the force? At least two of those officers
1: we have confirmed are currently on the force, and one of them almost certainly is.
0: Broadening this a bit to C's and D's, you identify 17 officers who were brought on kind of in that span, right? Right. After officers take these two tests, they're two tests are
1: averaged into one score mm. and then they're assigned bands which are based on a statistical equation that ranks them based on how
0: they've done the the point of the bands is that you don't know precisely where an officer landed in terms of their achievement it's a general sense of where they are on the scale right okay. right and that is what the civil service commission would work with exactly but it's fair to say that some in the C scale might be on the low end of it or the high end of D then.
1: It's true. Yeah, we can't tell specifically what scores these officers got due to Colorado public record laws and these bans. But we do know that in some of these bands, they go down into the 60th percentile. And so some of those officers could have scored Ds on their overall exam
0: scores. And still made it through. Still made it through and are currently working on the force. The man who developed the tests, an industrial psychologist named Wayne Cassio, told you hiring people with the equivalent of a D isn't good. Quoting from your story, he said, Aurora is scraping the bottom of the barrel of applicants. And upon seeing your investigation, the Aurora police chief, Art Acevedo, said he was very concerned, quoting here, I'd rather do more with less. I'd rather do more with quality individuals than scrape any barrel. Did he elaborate on what he'd do about that? Does he want to set a minimum grade they'd have to score? Well, first of all, Chief
1: Acevedo not even knowing about this is a symptom of a bigger problem here. It's a lack of communication between the Civil Service Commission and the police department. And this is one of the requirements of the consent decree, is that they work together and some of these responsibilities that the Civil Service Commission currently has be transferred over to the department, that they share information and start collecting data. Because what this story shows is a total breakdown of communication, not only between the Civil Service Commission and and the police department, but within the Civil
0: Service Commission itself. Ah. And so what... and, and I'll say the consent decree, that's kind of fancy legal terms, for the agreement that Aurora signed, because of the work of the state attorney general, to kind of shape up.
1: Right. And so this also ties to their requirement to hire more qualified officers here. From the police side of things, what you'll often hear is that the police need to have more control over the hiring process. And this has renewed calls by higher ups within the police department that they need to have more control and more say over who gets hired.
0: I mentioned that these are early tests, and then recruits go through psychological evaluations, interviews, background checks. On the question of the Civil Service Commission, they don't see, as you have told us, each candidate's specific grades on the test. They get a general idea of where that candidate ranks. You referred to that, I think, as bands, right? right? Yeah. The Commission chairman, Desmond McNeil, said he was surprised. By the low scores as well. Quoting again, why are we using a test if basically you can fail at it and we still move forward? It seems weird. McNeil might not know the specific scores, but wouldn't he know the bands? Wouldn't he know the general placement? I, I'm mystified.
1: You would think so. Yes. And this is another shocking part of the this breakdown in communication, right? You would think that the commissioners, the people who are voting to hire these people, would have at least seen their test score or at least seen their bands at some point in time. Part of the issue here is that their review is a blind process, and that's by design, right? They don't see the applicant's gender or race, and that's to cut back on potentially biased uh, hiring practices here. But in effect, what's happening here is that these commissioners don't actually know anything about these candidates when they're voting to hire them, except that they have passed the various hurdles that these candidates have had to get through regardless of whether or not they barely squeaked by or whether they sailed through and were prime candidates.
0: But Brian, you got access to the bans. Why wouldn't the civil service commissioners do that for
1: themselves? That's a great question. And it just sounds like the civil service commission has put faith in administrators at the commission to do that work for them.
0: And to move then along the candidates and say, these folks generally meet the criteria.
1: Right. And I'll say that up until 2019-2020, that system was working fairly well. There's a lot of other criticisms about this system, but in terms of the banding and higher scoring candidates passing through the system, I found that, say, in 2017 and 2018, the commission was largely passing through high scoring candidates, and that system was working. But then in 2019, 2020, we start to see police departments across the country complaining of not being able to get enough recruits through the door. And around that point, that's when the Civil Service Commission starts reviewing lower and lower scoring candidates in order to fill these police academies.
0: Coming up, why the barrel's bottom got more attractive. Our guest is Brian Howey, investigative reporter at the Sentinel. He discovered that one of the state's largest cities, Aurora, is bringing on prospective police officers who score the equivalent of D's on their entrance exams. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
4: Colorado Wonders answers listener questions.
3: One of my favorite place names in Colorado is the Never Summer Range. Well, I'm assuming it means it's always cold and wintry there, so snow never goes completely away.
4: Does summer really never reach the Never Summer Mountains? I'm Eden Lane. Get the answer from Colorado Wonders at CPR.org.
0: In Aurora, the outcry following the death of Elijah McLean in police custody led to increased oversight. The state attorney general says the department must change its hiring practices and diversify the force. Meanwhile, law enforcement just about everywhere struggles to recruit. Let's return to my interview with investigative reporter Brian Howey of The Sentinel, He's found that the city of Aurora, specifically its Civil Service Commission, is greenlighting prospective officers who score the equivalent of a D on entrance exams. Talk to us about the forces at play that might mean you, to quote other people, scrape the bottom of the barrel.
1: Right. The Civil Service Commission is in charge of filling these police academies, right? So they
0: have a quota to meet. And they, if they They don't... They know what the city needs in terms of a police force, right? And turnover and things like that.
1: Some people would argue against whether or not they know what the city needs. Sure. But in this case, they are charged with filling the police academies. And so they would say... We're dealing with the candidate pools that are handed to us by the police department. Those are the realities we're given. Right. The police department is the one who's in charge of recruiting these candidates. The Civil Service Commission takes it from there. And then after they hire them, pass them back to the police department. And so what commissioners have told me is in 2019, 2020, when these applicant pools started drying up, they still had to fill these police academies because the Aurora PD is short staffed and has been for some time now. And so So among other things, they've lowered some of the automatic disqualifiers that would have previously been an automatic. Nope, you can't be an officer. And they've also started digging down towards the bottom of the barrel here in
0: terms of the assessment scores and Uh assessments. What's an example of the former that they've removed Provisos that previously existed. Right.
1: So some of them involve certain crimes and drug use that would have automatically disqualified a candidate, certain DUI convictions that have been stayed. An applicant now might be able to get through the process, even though they have that on their record.
0: This is really important nuance, right? Because I can see on one hand the idea of not labeling someone with a past irredeemable, right? Uh, On the other hand, I can see what the risks are of bringing in people who may be more prone to certain kinds of behavior.
1: Right. And I think, you know, these are two different things, the testing and the lowered hurdles for the automatic disqualifiers. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of experts would argue that the automatic disqualifiers being lowered are going to allow a more diverse candidate pool of people who have borne the brunt of the criminal justice system, right? And these tend to be communities of color.
0: And the consent decree, the agreement with the state attorney general, said that Aurora needed to diversify its police force.
1: Exactly. Uh, It's
0: overwhelmingly white in a community that's not. Right. The difference here is that
1: with the lowered standards in the testing scores, you have a test that has been specifically designed to reduce racial discrepancies in who does or does not pass. The entire banding procedure is literally there to treat statistically similar scores as the same, which has been shown through various studies to reduce racial biases and testing outcomes.
0: This question is so cut and dried, but is it all bad then?
1: It's not all bad. You know, we have to take this with a grain of salt. These tests are not the be all end all determiner of whether or not an officer is going to do well at their job. Like you mentioned earlier, they are going through all of these other hurdles in order to get through this process, psychological exams, background checks, interviews, these sorts of things. And so policing experts did caution me against saying, you know, anyone who does poorly on this test is going to be a bad officer Mm. because the jury is still out on whether or not these tests are even good determiners of whether or not not people are going to do well once they're in the field.
0: And one would hope that a, a, a good academy could also reshape people. One would certainly hope so, mm-hmm. yes. So it seems to me that the real heart of your investigation is about the pretty bad communication, the the opacity around some of this information. Do you think that's true?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that is the crux of this investigation. And it's also... From talking to the consent decree monitor, there is certainly a push here to reevaluate how we're evaluating these officer candidates as they come through this process and determining whether or not this test is even worthwhile. And if it is, whether we should be raising the standards is something that the consent decree monitor, Jeff Schlanger, told me was on his to-do list.
0: Hmm. So you you did a little bit of translation for the lay audience and that was to take these scores and these bands and assign them what we would recognize as a b c d f. Right.
1: It, w- was that fair? yeah I I mean I could certainly see why some people would push back against that I think that it's fair because it was simply a device to show people everyone understands what an ABC or D is I mean those letter grades exist for a reason they're typically assigned to percentage ranges sure. and so if you score in a 60%
0: you like objectively haven't done very well on that test. Contrast the grades that Aurora will accept with those of surrounding police departments
1: for right. us. So during this investigation, I looked at a few other police departments' standards in terms of their entrance exams. And to be clear, a lot of other cities don't use the same test, so it's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison. Hmm. But one city that does is Denver. Denver's Civil Service Commission uses the same testing system as Aurora, and They have a cutoff score for their combined test score. After you take these two tests, you get your combined score. If you don't get above a 65% at Denver PD, you don't get to continue through the process.
0: That is a difference between Denver and Aurora. Right. Aurora doesn't have a cutoff score.
1: They have an established one for their overall test exam score. Is that going to
0: change because of your reporting?
1: Great question. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: To which you don't yet have an answer. I do not. Did people who outright failed the test, like in the F category, did they move forward ever? No, none of the candidates
1: who scored below a 60% ended up being hired. A couple of them who scored below 60 percent did move on to the next stage in the process. By this test and the Aurora Civil Service Commission standards, those officers did not technically fail. They scored a score that is the equivalent of a failing grade, say, if you were in college or high school. But
0: according to the parameters of this test, they did not technically fail. Fail. And so they were able to move on from that point at least to the other strictures the other rigors
1: right those two candidates who scored somewhere in the high 50% range uh, moved on to the background check process where okay. they were then disqualified and
0: then they were weeded out mm-hmm.
1: So that does speak to the other checks and balances that the Civil Service Commission has in place to weed out poor officers. This isn't the only thing that's determining whether or not an officer is going to be good at their job.
0: Well, let's talk about the pool. If it's limited and it's overwhelmingly white, are there ways of changing the pool, improving the pool,
1: diversifying it? The department, the city as a whole, has found itself in quite a pickle here, right? Because on the one hand, they're legally required to diversify their police department to hire more qualified candidates. At the same time, they are one of many departments across the country who are struggling to recruit new officers. In fact, I've heard from a couple of police chiefs that it is now becoming common practice for police departments to send recruiters to other police departments to try and coax them away. Oh, it's
0: like poaching. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's how desperate it's gotten. And so when you're stuck in this pickle, you have to decide, what are we going to do? Are we going to lower standards like the Civil Service Commission has done? Are we going to revamp our recruitment efforts, which is something that the department is in the process of doing now? They're going on more out-of-state trips. They spent $56,000 last year sending recruitment officers to NYPD, Albuquerque PD, Atlanta PD, the outcome of those trips wasn't as great as I think many would hope. Um, They only got a few candidates from NYPD. Um, From the Albuquerque and Atlanta trips, they only got one application. And so it sounds to me like the department is trying out new things. They're going to community colleges. They're trying to go to events that cater to women and people of color to try and get more people locally and from out of state to come and join the department. So they are currently in the process of trying to revamp this strategy, but
0: right now they're in dire straits. We hinted at this earlier, but there are any number of people who say that this is an over-policed country and that the fundamental assumption that you need X number of officers is perhaps flawed. Hmm. And maybe those are folks who should be working as mental health outreach teams, you know, as we've seen with the STAR program in Denver, for instance. I mean, this is a much deeper philosophical question, Brian, but should we be also questioning the algorithm itself? Mm, Yeah, I mean, that's a
1: great question. And I think that that's something a lot of experts, especially mental health experts, and people from outside of policing, who have been studying how police interact with people in the midst of mental health crises, or homeless people, that sort of thing have been questioning a lot lately. And I think um, how we're going to handle that going forward is one of the big questions of our generation. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Brian Howey is investigative reporter in residence at Sentinel, Colorado, in Aurora. We discussed his story headlined, Dearth of Aurora Cop Recruits, Prompt City to Advance and Hire Applicants Who Test Poorly. It's part of the Sentinel series, In the Blue, and we'll put a link in today's podcast. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with the latest episode of our politics podcast, Purplish. Is the art of compromise going the way of the dodo? I'm Ryan Warner You're with CPR News and KRCC. John
2: B. Stetson traveled to Colorado as a young man to see the Rockies while he still could. He had tuberculosis. His time was short, he thought, and so he made the trek west across the plains. Camping in the cold east of Colorado Springs one night, Stetson, son of a Philadelphia hatter, fashioned a strange new hat, gave it a high crown and wide brim all around to better protect himself from sun, rain, wind, and hail. A horseman paid him $5 for that hat. Later, cured of TB and back in Philadelphia, Stetson built an empire with his creation. It could fan the flames of a campfire or carry water to a horse and keep out the sun and rain. By the time he died at the age of 76, his factory in Philadelphia was turning out hundreds of thousands. He named that hat the boss of the Plains, But most folks just call it a Stetson. A Colorado postcard from
0: CPR. With the support of National Jewish Health. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. As Republican lawmakers adapt to their super minority in the state house, they confront a big question. Is it better to negotiate when they can or dig in with delay tactics? Let's get into that with Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Here are public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. Let me set a scene for you.
5: It was a recent Friday afternoon, but the people of the State House chamber were actually just settling down for what was going to be a long stretch of work. I was off to the side, talking quietly into my mic. It is 2.25 p.m. I see Snarf Sandwiches arriving. People are settling in for what could be 48 hours in this building. I feel tired already. Lawmakers knew they were starting a debate that could stretch late into the night and potentially all through the weekend. Where, where are you at psychologically right now? In good shape. I mean, this is very important work that we're doing and we need to to do it. So we're doing fine. I'm a, We got a lot of night owls in this group.
3: The House was taking up a series of controversial Democratic bills. And in fact, it did end up as one of the longest lawmaking marathons in recent memory.
5: The lobbyists are gone, the Senate is gone, the reporters are still here.
3: Democrats have big ambitions this year, and Republicans are doing what they can to raise big objections.
5: In this case, the fight was over guns, and this weekend was going to be the last real opportunity for Republicans to stop or really even just change the measures. And then we're going to try to do that by forcing Democrats to have a really long debate over them. Um, I tell my wife that I'm going to be home late.
1: <laughs> my wife watches this online.
3: Late nights aren't a new thing at the legislature. They've always been this price of passing controversial bills. But lawmakers in both parties are approaching contentious debates differently now than they have in the past. What we ended up seeing over this weekend was a breakdown in trust. And the result is that this tradition of limitless debate may have reached its limits. Madam Speaker, pursuant to House Rule 14, I move that the time for debate on Senate Bill 170 be limited to one hour And time for debate on Senate Bill 168 to be limited to one hour during special orders on March
4: 25th.
5: Democrats used what some have called the nuclear option to put an end to the seemingly endless talking. It was a really unusual moment in the state's political history. And the forces that brought us to this moment could have a major effect on politics this year and beyond.
3: They may just seem like political theatrics, but these tactics can have a real impact on how many things get done and what gets done.
5: Slowing down the work of the chamber can be a way for lawmakers in the minority to register their anger with the other side's policies.
3: It's also a way to gain leverage to win at least some concessions on a bill, even if they don't have the votes to actually defeat it.
5: You may be familiar with this kind of tactic because of the filibuster. That's a term that comes mostly from the U.S. Senate. The image it calls to mind classically is a lawmaker who goes up and takes forever and ever to just talk and stop a bill from getting a vote.
2: I had some pretty good coaching last night, and I find that if I yield only for a question or a point of order or a personal privilege, that I can hold this floor almost until doomsday. In other words, I've got a piece to speak. And blow hot or cold, I'm going to speak.
5: Now, Congress up in Washington, D.C. has changed a bit. In the Senate, they actually don't get up anymore for the most part and really filibuster. Instead, it's just kind of guaranteed that any remotely controversial bill requires 60 Senate votes to pass that chamber. It's almost like an automatic filibuster. Back here in Colorado, however, we still do it the old-fashioned way.
3: So if you're the minority party, you don't like a policy, you want to slow it down, you really do have to get up there. There's a microphone in the center of the chamber mm-hmm. at the podium and just talk, talk, talk.
5: <laughs> the chance to do that happens at one particular step in the process. The first time that the whole chamber considers a bill when lawmakers are allowed to just debate endlessly, or at least for as long as they can keep going. So they get up there and just, again, like you said, talk.
3: One thing that's kind of interesting, I I looked this up, and a lot of states have debate limits, which we do at certain points, but not at this point. Colorado's unique. It is pretty limitless. And this can hold up the work of the chamber because nothing else can happen when the whole chamber is considering one piece of legislation. So that means there can't be votes on other committees happening at the same time. Nothing happens until this debate ends.
5: And the result can be these really long nights. It matters because, you know, first of all, lawmakers and their staff are human beings. They get tired. They want to go home and see their families. But also, ultimately, Colorado's legislature is always on a deadline. Mm -hmm. They only meet for session for 100 20 consecutive days. And so every day that they lose to these really long debates is time that they don't have to work on other bills.
3: Yes. And these delay tactics have become especially important this year because it is one of the few ways Republicans can influence what gets done.
5: Democrats hold the widest legislative majority in state history. They're doing big things with it. Gun control and abortion policies and land use reform.
3: Republicans do not have the votes to stop any of these policies, but what they do have is the power to make the debates take a very, very long time. And that means time itself is a big lever to negotiate other things.
5: Yeah, they can use time. They can use delay tactics to buy changes to bills. Like, for example, in order to end debate, the majority might just agree to some amendments. Like, if you guys will just stop talking, we'll make some changes.
3: Even in those cases where the delays don't result in anything tangible, just the amount of time lawmakers spend drawing out a debate, that is a way for members to register how angry they are with a piece of legislation to show their side, their constituents, hey, we're fighting as hard as we can, Mm -hmm. even if you know you can't win.
5: So that's how it's played out for, for quite some time. But this drama is a little bit different this year. Republicans are reaching for that filibuster option, it seems, more often, talking more, delaying more. And Democrats are showing that they're less willing to wait it out or go to these negotiations. And instead, they've turned to a rarely used rule that allows them to just cut Republicans off after a certain amount of time.
3: That has us and, frankly, a lot of people at the Capitol and people who follow what goes on there wondering are we entering a whole new phase potentially a significantly more confrontational one with a lot more delays and a lot less compromise
5: So before we can get to the ways that this might be going off the rails, whatever rails there are, let's go a little bit deeper and explain how delays and the threat of delays normally work at the legislature. Let's expand on that a little bit more.
3: I have actually a really good example of this recently, Mm -hmm. um, something that happened to me when I was in the Senate. I was waiting for the chamber to take up some controversial Democratic bills. They needed to take a final vote on whether to accept some changes that were made.
5: All right. So they're kind of at the last final step in this long process.
3: Yes. And so we knew the vote was supposed to happen that day. It was a Friday. Mm -hmm. It was on the calendar, which isn't always a for sure thing that it's going to happen. But the Senate president had told members of the press that week this was going to be voted on Friday.
5: And you kind of get to do that when you're the president of the Senate. You get to say, it's going to happen on Friday.
3: Exactly. So I figure the Senate president said it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So I'm at the press table, which is in a corner of the Senate chamber, Uh when Republican Senator Bob Gardner walks by. Uh And I just casually said, oh, so you're doing these bills today. And he said, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I'm sitting there with other members of the press corps and we're kind of surprised. Like, Uh No, I think you are. But then a little bit later, Democrats announced that they were not doing the bills.
5: So how did Bob Gardner end up being more right about the schedule than the people who actually set the schedule?
3: Yeah, it's funny. He came back around and I said, wait, what happened? And he said, look, I told Democratic leaders, if we do this today, it will take longer. But if (laughs) we do it on Monday, it won't take long at all. (laughs) And they said, hey, can we be done by noon Monday? And he said, sure, no problem.
5: So Senator Gardner, the Republican, is telling Democrats that if they make this thing happen on Friday, he will guarantee that it takes a long time by getting up there and talking. But if they let it go on Monday, well, maybe Senator Gardner won't make it take a long time.
3: One of the reasons I wanted to highlight that story is it just shows how choreographed some of the debates can be on the legislative floor. It may look as if lawmakers are organically going on for a long time. But there are a lot of times that behind the scenes, Republicans and Democrats are actually working out the rules for how long that debate will last.
5: It's kind of like pro wrestling sometimes where they've worked out who's going to win beforehand or how long it's going to take.
3: Mm -hmm.
5: In other cases, they're actually negotiating while somebody's up there talking and talking and talking and giving a speech. So that can be an example of Republicans creating time to bring Democrats to the table to negotiate.
3: And I think it's worth mentioning that certainly with these big Democratic majorities this year, Republicans may win a few amendments, but it's not like that means Republicans are suddenly going to support the bill overall. Usually they're just pushing to make what they see as bad policy get a little less bad.
5: So anyway, that choreography, the negotiations, it all relies on trust. In the Bob Gardner case that you just gave, the Democratic leaders had to believe him when he said he wouldn't cause any trouble if they just agreed to hold off and vote on Monday. Right.
3: Exactly. And one thing about that story, it happened in the state Senate. And this session, things there have been pretty normal in terms of how delays are used to negotiate things. Yeah. What we'll be talking about for the rest of this episode is what's happening in the house, the other chamber, because it does look like that relationship, that trust between members just isn't there right now. And that is affecting how they do their work and maybe even what they can accomplish this session. This brings us right back to that scene we opened the show with, that Friday afternoon in the house when Republicans and Democrats were settling into debate a very contentious package of gun bills.
5: We did a whole episode about gun policies earlier this season that you should definitely go listen to if you want to learn more about it. But just to catch us up, let's go through what specifically the House was considering that weekend.
3: Three different bills. One would expand the state's extreme risk protection order law. Another would raise the age to purchase any firearm to 21 the final bill would make it easier to sue the firearms industry.
5: With bills like this, it's just guaranteed. You just know that the floor debate, one way or another, is going to take hours and hours. Like we said, the more controversial or partisan a bill is, the more objections that the opponents are going to feel like they have to raise.
4: Are we
2: as Americans and Coloradans spoiled enough to think that this government couldn't become despotic? Go through history, and you show me a country that took guns that did not become despotic at one point. So this law flies in the face of the Constitution of the United States of America and therefore in, in the, flies in the face of the Constitution of Colorado.
4: A system and society that gives the weight and power and authority of the law to ordinary people that are filled with passion and bias Which lends this law to be absurd and used as a tool for vengeance and will turn neighbor against neighbor.
5: But what was different with this debate was that even before it began, everybody was talking about the fact that Democrats might end up using a special rule called Rule 14 to actually limit just how long Republicans would be allowed to go on.
3: Democrats didn't use this right away. So it wasn't until eight hours into the debate on Saturday that the hammer dropped.
4: The motion to force is pursuant to House Rule 14, debate on Senate Bill 170 be limited to one hour, and time for debate on Senate Bill 168 be limited to one hour during special orders on March 25th. This is a non-debatable motion pursuant to House Rule 15E and requires a simple majority vote.
5: So you heard that right. You can't debate the rule that cuts off debate which, I don't know, I guess makes sense, maybe. But what you need to know about this rule is that it goes all the way back to the 1800s. It almost never gets used at the Capitol, though, because it kind of goes against this long-standing norm that at this particular stage in the lawmaking process, open debate should be open. Lawmakers should have at least one step in the process where they're allowed to go on as long as they want or as long as they can. And so this Rule 14 has gotten the reputation for being the nuclear option, the one that the threat is there, but it's almost never used.
3: And after this all happened, Republicans really did kind of blow up. The party sent out an angry press release, and then on the floor, things got very heated.
5: All you had to do was sit and listen. But you can't do that. Because listening to God, truth, righteousness, And freedom actually hurts the souls of those who are not in favor of those mentalities. That was Republican Representative Scott Bottoms. And those comments later drew a rebuke from Democratic House leadership. How did we get to this point? Why did they end up using Rule 14? If you ask Democratic leadership, the problem was that the delay tactics and the talking wasn't going anywhere. They say they were trying to negotiate with Republicans on amendments to the bill, trying to find an agreement that would make the debate stop after 10, 14 hours. But it was becoming clear that some Republican lawmakers were just going to keep talking no matter what offers Democrats made. And so Democrats said there was no reason to keep working on a deal. There was no deal that was going to happen. So you might as well just end the debate.
2: There came a point over the weekend where it was really clear that this was not really about engagement on issues. It was about delaying, and it was about stopping the majority of people elected by the voters of Colorado from doing what the voters sent us here to do. And so, you know, we do believe that the minority party has every right to authentic engagement from the majority party about their concerns, but there's a limit to that when it turns into a delay tactic.
3: That was House Speaker pro tem Chris Degree Kennedy. And I will say, not every Democrat was comfortable using Rule 14. But the Democratic leaders were clear that they felt it was time to move on.
5: So we weren't in the room for the negotiations between the Republican and Democratic leaders all day. But I can confirm that they were negotiating throughout the delays and the speeches. Democrats offered some amendments that would have narrowed the scope of one of the bills. And some Republicans felt like they were pretty close to a deal. Here's Representative Matt Soper. There was the nod that that's how we were going to proceed. And then debate was supposed to end after the three amendments were adopted. But Soper said that they could never close the deal, that some members just wouldn't accept it. We had some of um, our, our members
4: decide they didn't like the deal that was in the works and they began to blow up the bill.
3: And it's interesting to hear that from Soper about what happened within the Republican caucus over those negotiations, because it shows the real divide among Republicans on whether to fight for compromises on bills they do not like or skip compromising and just try to make as much noise as possible.
5: Yeah, you know, some members like Soper see filibustering and holding the floor as a means to an end, as a tool. It's a way to win leverage, like we saw in your Bob Gardner story. And then you use the leverage to get a change, and then you stop talking once you get something close to what you want. But then there are other Republican members who are generally further right, who just don't think that leverage buys them anything that's worth having. These Democratic bills on guns and abortion are so, they'll call them unconstitutional, even godless. In their minds, the only acceptable outcome is for the bill to die or for Republicans to at least talk until the bitter end of trying to oppose it. Did you hear any amendments on Saturday that satisfied you or were you right? You... Uh, well, none. None would really. I mean, the only way to satisfy would that would be to...
2: To, uh, to kill the bill entirely as far as a constitutionality
5: part. That's Representative Ken DeGraff, a newer lawmaker and one who's been talking a lot at the well. And he mentioned that even if there were amendments he could get behind, he just didn't trust Democrats to actually enact them. He thought they would just go back on their word.
3: This goes to the idea that behind the scenes on these big contentious debates, the two sides still have to trust each other. So you have to trust when someone tells you something that that's going to happen. And in this case, you have some lawmakers on the Republican side, and I think it's just a handful, who don't buy into that trust. And when that happens, everything else can kind of fall apart.
5: When I was talking to Representative DeGraff, I suggested to him that it seemed like he and other Republicans have taken a new approach to how to be the minority. That sometimes their priority is to get up there and make a point and go out fighting rather than pursue smaller compromises. And he pretty much agreed. The compromise to victory strategy, I don't think is a strategy. I think it's just... It's
2: compromise and every time you compromise you move you move farther to the uh, the Hegelian hell state.
5: If you didn't quite catch that, he referred to Colorado descending into a Hegelian hell state. I think a hell state is probably self explanatory. Hegel, German philosopher credited with influencing one Karl Marx. Conservatives generally not a big fan of Marx.
3: Not a phrase you usually hear lawmakers say, but might have been the
5: first time it was ever said in the Capitol.
3: You can track that down. I'll I'll leave that to you to find that out. But we kind of heard a similar story from the Democratic side, not the hell state part, but just the (laughs) idea that negotiations broke down.
5: The deal, such as it was, didn't happen. There was just this very real threat that lawmakers would continue to talk. DeGraff told me that if they hadn't called Rule 14, he acknowledged that the debate may well still have been going a week later or however long Republicans and the holdouts could really last.
3: And I think Democrats facing that type of attitude, they feel like they absolutely had no choice but to enact Rule 14 and to limit debate. I sat down with the Speaker of the House, Julie McCluskey. This is her fifth year in the legislature, her first year as Speaker, and she's leading a historically large caucus of 46 Democrats, but also Speaker of the entire chamber. That You know, it's Speaker of the House. And she said she did not come to the decision lightly to
4: enact Rule 14. The first moment as we were calling for House Rule 14, you know, my heart was heavy because it felt like uh, we had not succeeded in bringing our debate to a, a reasonable close in the right way. But I also heard from members both sides of the chamber a sense of relief that we, in that moment when we were stuck, we needed that guidance. I do not intend to invoke Rule 14 just to manage the time of our day. I really believe that was a unique circumstance.
3: You know, she said it's a unique circumstance, but I would note that she's invoked it again <laughs> on a package of abortion bills.
5: Yeah, that was just a matter of days after the gun bill package. So... It may be getting less unique, less unusual to see debate limited.
3: Certainly, that's what you hear from opponents. Kind of, once you cross the line to invoke a rule like this, then it could become more common. But when I talked to McCluskey about it, she said she certainly doesn't like that it's come to this.
4: The debate was no longer productive. It didn't feel authentic, and that I don't think is is good for the chamber. I don't. I certainly don't think it's good for the process. I don't think it honors what the process is designed to help accomplish. And so without um, us being able to resolve our debate on our own, the use of House Rule 14 felt right in that moment.
5: Again, Democrats are saying that this is their only option because they're facing obstructionism. I'll point out, you know, I've also heard from a number of Republicans that Democrats could simply do less.
3: (laughs) Well, I'm not surprised to hear that from Republicans. (laughs) You know, they don't support those policies. But look, Democrats are saying we have these huge majorities in Colorado. Voters elected us. We gained seats in the last election. We are here to get things done.
5: So we promised you this isn't just all talking about technical political maneuvers. And it's not because I think this raises a big question for both sides. For Republicans, it's are they going to be able to keep negotiating like they have in the past? Are they going to keep focusing on getting small amendments and changes? Or are they going to move more into just protesting what's happening For Democrats, are they going to get more comfortable with this idea that they can limit debate? Are they going to be more willing to just roll over Republicans if they don't get out of the way? So we've crossed this Rule 14 Rubicon. Democrats have sliced through the Gordian Knot by saying, hey, we're limiting debate. But that's not the end of the story because Republicans still have some other options for delays.
3: That's absolutely right. They have one ironclad tactic, Ooh. and that is that the state constitution allows any lawmaker to ask for a bill to be read out loud at length.
5: Every word of it.
3: Yes. And so it's done by a computer these days, moves quickly, but still can take a very long time.
2: There has been a request that the bill be read at length at 6.53 p.m. A bill
4: for an act. 101 concerning extreme risk protection orders. Bill summary. Summary. Note, this summary applies to this bill. as And
3: so this can really bring things to a halt, especially with very long bills.
4: If this bill passes third reading in the House of Introduction. Some
3: bills could take 10, 12, 14 hours to read at length. And the courts have said that there's no way to prevent this from happening.
5: And so part of the decision facing Republicans now is they have to decide with debate limited and Rule 14 going into effect more and more, do they want to turn to this other tactic? Do they want to have everything read at length as a way to just eat up time?
3: And in the House, the Democratic response has been, well, if you're going to eat up time during the week, we will just have to work weekends. And that's rare. I talked to one of the House staffers who said, other than this session, she's maybe worked like one Saturday in 15 years. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can speak to that too as a reporter in terms of legislators working on the weekends. It used to be more of a threat, like that they may come in on a Saturday, but it typically never happened. That's becoming more and more frequent. And lack of sleep and long hours and working on weekends when people, that's when they see their families, that's when they go back to their districts. People are getting grumpier and grumpier and more angry to just be in the building. That doesn't bode well for what the mood's gonna be like and how open people are to really working on tough issues in the final few weeks.
0: Benta Berkland, Andrew Kenny, and Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Follow this and all the episodes wherever you get podcasts, and it's CPR.org. The state legislature passed two of the measures Andy and Benta invoked. One raises the minimum age to buy a gun in Colorado to 21. The other expands who can request extreme risk protection orders, or ERPAs to include people like teachers, therapists, and doctors. That's if they're concerned someone might be a risk to themselves or to others. Both bills await Governor Polis's signature. And that is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News and KRCC.